A reading from the book of Genesis, beginning at the 11th chapter, the first verse. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, over, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because where there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, beginning at the second chapter, the first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Ju Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were be bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of, of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phesiria, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the connection between the events at Pentecost recounted for us in Acts and the events at Babel recorded in Genesis, the connections between these two events are obvious. Pentecost is clearly meant to be understood as God reversing many of the negative consequences of Babel. Where the events of Genesis 11 led to the dispersion of people from a central city, at Pentecost, the Lord, the Holy Spirit capitalizes on people having come together in a city, the city of Jerusalem, to worship God. 
where the consequences of the tower at Babel include the confusion of languages. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit enables the apostles to proclaim the good news of Christ in all the languages of the peoples gathered there. So clearly, the Feast of Pentecost is a major benchmark in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. But today, I want to consider a middle step, if you will, between these two events. And that is the way that Jesus himself reversed Babel in his earthly ministry before the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost ever did. And I want to talk about the ways that remains significant for us. But to get there, I want to go back for a moment to Genesis even before Babel. To the beginning, where chapter 1 describes God creating the heavens and the earth. And I have this and some other scriptures on your insert, if it's something you want to follow along with. Genesis chapter 1 reminds us that uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after this, this chapter of Genesis lays God out as the creator of the land and the sea, but also of the animals, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. But in addition to all of those creatures, Genesis says that God created humankind as distinct from all the other creatures. Verse 27 says, God created man, humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we could literally spend days delving into what all of this means, just this one concept that we are created in God's image. But for today, at least part of what it means is that like God, we as humans have the capacity to create. To create. Now, I know many animals have some capacity to create, let's say, habitats for themselves. A few even seem to be able to use what we might call tools to build or to get food for themselves. One thinks of the way an otter uses rocks to break the shells of invertebrates that they find on the ocean floor in order to get to the meat and eat it. But having granted that, I think we can agree that no other creature has the creative capacities that we as humans do, not even close. In fact, while Psalm 8 today Psalm 8 today says that God made us, quote, a little lower than the angels. But even angels, mind you, angels cannot create. Demons either. Satan himself cannot create. Perhaps that's what he's so upset about. All he can do is pervert the good that God has created. So the combination of our intelligence and physical abilities as humans, not least these opposable thumbs, allows us to take the matter of the earth and create it into something greater than what it is, to give it a larger purpose. And we see this capacity on display as we fast forward to Genesis 11. The story of Babel follows Noah and the flood in chapter 6 through 9 and a genealogy of Noah's descendants in chapter 10. So chapter 11 opens saying that the whole earth, at least the whole earth as they knew it at that time, the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the lane of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, as I've said in previous sermons on this passage, this was a time in history when more and more humans were beginning to shift away from being hunter-gatherers toward using agriculture to survive. That was an improvement because it didn't necessitate people living far apart. So cities were beginning to appear at this time. But in the region of southern Mesopotamia, where this story of Babel is set, Today, it's southeastern Iraq. In that region, cities had been slower to appear because the landscape offered no large stones to build with, as Palestine did, for example. So it wasn't until the technological advance of brick-making emerged around 3000 BC that it became possible to build cities in this part of Mesopotamia. And that's what our passage is recounting. These descendants of Noah have devised a way to make bricks. And yet we should also keep in mind that this occurs after the fall, of course. The fall of humanity and the sin through Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So what we see next at Babel is these humans using their creative capacities with some not-so-great motives some ideas that are separate from God's will. The technological advancement of of brick-making opened up new possibilities for building, of course. But in verse 4, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over over the face of the whole earth. So with human sin in the mix, with these creative capacities, their motives are mixed at best. The desire for unity, for not being dispersed, that's that's not bad in and of itself, of course. Although if it is motivated by wanting to protect themselves from outside threats, it is notable that there's an, an absence of them consulting the Lord in this concern which we know later would really uh, mess mess Israel up, right? When they didn't consult God and and when they were fearful of their enemies. No, what we see is them relying on their own wisdom and essentially seeking strength in numbers so that they don't have to rely on the Lord, perhaps. But their other stated motive is clearly rooted in sin, that they want to build a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for themselves. This is all about glorifying themselves and perhaps even seeking to control God, if not displace him. They're essentially using technology and organization to repeat the sin of Adam and Eve on a corporate or group level. And yet what happens next shows what a fool's errand all of this is. First, their efforts clearly fall short of their lofty hopes of reaching the heavens. As verse 5 says, the Lord then came down to inspect the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Am I projecting on God when I imagine him sort of laughing here? Perhaps. 
Apparently, they hadn't, in fact, been able to reach the heavens. But verse six, verses 6 and 7 show that as loving and merciful as God is toward humankind, when we attempt to displace him by seeking our own glory, God is not going to enable it. And when we choose to rely on our own limited understanding for how to live our lives and deal with challenges, we better be clear that we're going up against the creator of the universe, which is truly stupid. So he, God thwarts these humans' efforts, not only because he's a God of boundaries, but in order that their descendants might realize the error of their ways and humble themselves and have to turn to him. So in Genesis 11, we see our human limitations on full display. While we are made in God's image, including the capacity to create, make no mistake, these capacities still pale in comparison to God's capacities to create. I know this is stating the obvious, but their piddly little tower demonstrates this. We also see here, though, that living for ourselves, that is, seeking to advance self apart from God, is to live without wisdom. There's a warning here in the final verses as the people at Babel experience dispersion and confusion. A warning that even our best efforts will still bear bad fruit and lead to frustrations if they're contrary to God's intention for us. So more than anything, Genesis 11 really shows what a fix our sinful conditions has, has, our sinful condition has us in. It portends of the inevitable messes we make and leave in our wake when we seek to chart our own paths apart from God. And it bespeaks of our need to be saved from this way of living, to be rescued from this sinful way of living that we've been born into, all of us. However, it's not all bad news in Genesis 11. There is a hint of this salvation we need, even in this passage. In verse 5, when it says, The Lord came down to, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, this coming down foreshadows God's future plan of salvation to come down to us, to the cities of man, through the incarnation of his Son. The Son of God indeed chose to leave behind heaven and to come live among us to enter into our mess and our world of idols and towers. I'd said earlier that I sometimes imagine God laughing at what he saw at Babel, but perhaps that is a projection of what I imagine I would do if I were God. So I think that actually sells God's character sort of short. Because what, we, what God reveals about himself through Jesus is that his heart is one of compassion for humankind. Matthew 9 in your insert describes Jesus going through all the cities, interesting word there, cities, and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And verse 36, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He did not condemn them. He did not laugh at them. 
He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They needed salvation that only he could bring them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then Mark 6 says the same, right, at verse 34. After Jesus came ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But the link between Babel and the ministry of Jesus is even deeper than God coming down to earth into the cities of man. There is an additional link, and that is the link of buildings. Buildings. Because while the story of Babel is one of constructing a building, Jesus himself insisted that his ministry was just the opposite. That his ministry was one of disassembling, dismantling, tearing down the buildings of man through the destruction of his own body. If you'll look with me for just a moment at John chapter 2 there in your insert, this is just after Jesus has cleansed a building, cleansed the temple in John's gospel. And the Jewish leaders confront Jesus about what he's just done. They ask him in verse 18, saying, What sign do you show for us for doing these things? But Jesus answered them, get this, Jesus answered them, Verse 19, destroy this temple, destroy this building, and in three days I will raise it up. So then the Jews, confused, said it. You know, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But John explains in verse 21 that Jesus was speaking about the temple, the building of his body. You see, when Jesus came to earth, when he became human, he lived his life in a way that contrasts considerably with what humans were up to at Babel or the prideful and fearful way of living that any of us and all of us have been born into. Jesus instead lived the way we were intended to. He is the second Adam did what the first Adam failed to do in trusting God to take care of him and in living for God's glory rather than seeking glory for himself. In fact, just three chapters later in John 5, Jesus clearly expressed this when he said to his opponents, I do not receive glory from people. I'm not trying to get people's glory. I look to the Father for my glory to glorify me. So Jesus expresses a heart that couldn't be more different from the intentions of the people at Babel. Rather than seeking to build and make a name for himself, Jesus allowed the temple of his body to be broken, to be destroyed. Jesus lived and was even willing to die for the sake of others. And in doing so, he blazed, he charted a new path for us to follow. This is the path of salvation, the path of an eternal quality of life, life in the kingdom of God where he could teach us and help us to do the same as he did, not living for ourselves, living for the Father's glory, trusting him to take care of us, and sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. That is the path of eternal life, as life is, is counterintuitive as it is to our flesh. As we all know, the human advances in technology and organizing did not stop with the invention of bricks and the building of cities. In just the last century and a half since Edison's honing of electricity, 
the invention of the light bulb in 1879, we have seen hum humanity's technological advancement accelerate at, to a warp speed, right? And yet, the more things change, well, y'all can finish it for me, the more they stay the same, right? Because just as the invention of bricks was a good fruit, fruit of humanity's capacity to create, what is then done with that, with that technology can be for good or it can be for ill. Right? And the same goes for any of the more recent techno technological advances in our lifetimes. Right? Before the invention of electricity in the automobile, right, those were good things, but they also have had consequences. Right? Before that, we weren't being threatened by global warming or or every hundred-year natural disaster is happening like ten times a year, right? Before the in invention of electricity, there was no atomic bomb. Right? Technological advance, creative capacity can be used for good or for ill. Right? The internet. <laughs> the internet has been wonderful in so many ways, right? I mean, I, I, I genuinely hate to imagine, I've, I have imagined it some, what our parish would have done without the internet over the last year? I mean, would we still be here? It would have been hard. But we also know that the internet has served to radicalize millions of people in various directions, right? And made it harder for every single one of us, every single one of us, the internet has made it harder for us to know fact from fiction. Every single one of us. Right. I could go on, right, with the ills or the goods that have come from technological advance, that it can be used either way. Right, that's my point, though. This isn't meant, though, to be a history of human ingenuity. This is a sermon. The point is that as much as this or that technology, though, is touted to us and marketed, is supposedly ridding our lives of problems, of our biggest problems, right? I mean, that's what the marketing says. Whatever it is, the new iPhone or whatever, life's going to be so different with it. In reality, it may improve some things, but it also leads to new problems, right? As wonderful as our creative capacities are, they can always be used either for good or for ill, and they always will be, right? Because of our sin. Which is to say that in the end, for as great as our capa creative capacities are, they aren't enough. They never will be enough. Apart from God, our creative capacities can even be a liability and be destructive. We cannot save ourselves with ingenuity and advancement. We as humans need Jesus. And we always will. He showed us that the way of true life is in a much different and even counterintuitive direction than humans could ever imagine. And that direction is to live for God rather than ourselves to unite around faith rather than fear, 
and to sacrifice of ourselves for the blessing of others. Jesus blazed that path and he showed us that way. That is the path of eternal life. And yet, I mean, this isn't the first time I've said this, you know. We've probably all heard this, right? We probably all know this, many of us. But knowing the right path isn't enough, is it? Just knowing it. I mean, we can know what we ought to do. <laughs> but actually doing it is a whole other thing, right? Knowing what I ought to do and actually doing it are two very different things, right? Knowledge isn't power. At least it's not powerful enough to overcome our sin. Our sin is a greater power than any knowledge we may have of the truth. Wasn't this the experience St. Paul was describing in Romans 7 when he, he famously confessed, right? I mean, this is St. Paul, right? He knows the gospel. He knows Jesus, and yet he said, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in the condition I was born into. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, that's what I keep doing. Can I get an amen to Paul? I mean, right? It's not good enough for us to know that it is better to love rather than hate. We all know that. And yet fire up the internet and you start hating pretty quick, right? <laughs> We all know, we all know that it is better to trust God than fear. We all know that it's better to seek God's glory rather than our own. But we not only need to know it, we need help to do it. We need our hearts, our desires, and our wills transformed. That's the human predicament. And that is why, as we celebrate today, God has given his Holy Spirit to those who turn to him and believe that his son's way is best. The Holy Spirit is Christ dwelling in us, whom he intends for us to daily turn and yield ourselves to. That's God's intention, that Christ might live through us. You know, we've probably all heard Jesus' teaching that is printed on, on the bottom of your insert, flipping over too, that, you know, where Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Right? We've, pro we've all heard that. But it's often missed that when Jesus says this in Luke's gospel, at least, he's saying it specifically in reference to the Holy Spirit. Specifically in reference to the Holy Spirit. He continues in 11.10 by promising, For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, to the one who knocks it will be opened. And here's where he explains it. He says, For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, Jesus is saying, if you then who are evil, who are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit the strength and the power, who provides the strength and power we need to not be, live enslaved to our sin, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
And this is a remarkable promise about the Holy Spirit dwelling within those who believe, right? Understand, he isn't going to violate our free will. That's not how God works. Just because the Holy Spirit's in us doesn't mean we ever pay attention to him or seek to live through him, ask for his help. And so our lives won't change much and we'll still be just as awful as we were without Jesus in a lot of ways, right? God's not going to violate our free will. The people at Babel, he didn't violate their free will. He let them build the tower, right? But if we ask God for help, if we seek God's wisdom about the best path forward in the situations in our life, and if we seek his understanding of the roots of the sin that's habitual in our lives, if we knock on, on the door of, his, of him, for help to dig up those roots and to find satisfaction for our needs in him rather than the fleeting things of the world, that is a prayer he will answer. He will. Insofar as we make this the aim of our lives to glorify God and abide in his spirit, then our lives will increasingly bear the fruit of love, of joy, of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the kingdom. And we'll be able to use the whole of humanity's creative capacities for good and not for ill. Right? We'll be able to use the internet for blessing and not for wrath. Right? Because the way that we see Pentecost reverse the consequences of sin and actually bring about unity through Christ along lines where that's normal, there's normally division, right? Among language, among ethnicity, among na nations. That reminds us of just how much better things are when we open ourselves up to God's way of doing things in this broken and fallen world. The Lord is our creator and his will is always best. So I'll close this way. By creating the world and then creating us in his image, God gave us the resources and the capacities to create. I think God really wants to accentuate this here. But by sending his Son and his Holy Spirit, God has given, us, given a way for us to create and utilize humanity's creations for good rather than ill. So the first gift is the gift of life. The second gift to those who will receive it is the gift of eternal life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.